0: And so that's how we find ourselves this morning in Malachi chapter 3. Uh, if you have your pew Bible, it's page 929, and I'm actually going to pick up one verse early. So chapter 2, verse 17, and I will read through verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. So Malachi two seventeen through 3, 6. You have wearied the wo- Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is God's word for us this morning. And it seems to me that there's three things that we need to consider from this passage. We need to think about how we hope for justice. But then we need to think about what true justice looks like and what our true hope is. And for note takers, I'll give you a hint. My third point's longer than the other two, so it's a little bit wonky. This week, I got called up for jury duty. Uh, it was a criminal case, so there was 45 potential jurors. Uh, and we spent six hours on Tuesday getting screened. The judge asked questions, the prosecutor asked questions, the defense attorney, um, because they recognized that we might have potential biases that would cause us to not uh, rule fairly in this case. I was juror 36, so fortunately my number was too high, they never got to me and filled the jury in time, but uh, it it took hours of screening uh, going through. I think I was there for six or seven hours in the courthouse Uh, But as the judge dismissed the rest of us, she thanked us, saying it was necessary to have such a large group because people have biases. And so if we want to have a fair trial, the jurors have to be selected from a large and random group to try and screen out people that are biased, that have some sort of a, uh, a reason why they might side with one party or the other in this case. We all want justice, but we also recognize that as humans, it's all too easy to be flawed in the way we execute justice. It's not just us adults who value justice in courts, but uh, children have an especially sharp sense of justice. One of our daughters, who's not in the room so I can talk about her, she, uh, she will carefully watch when desserts serve, not to make sure she gets an equal portion, but to make sure all of her siblings are all getting fair. Uh, she has a sharpened sense of everything being just and fair. And as we look around, we see all sorts of things, though, that make us ask, where is justice? Where is justice? In fact, it's one of the biggest obstacles that many people face to believing in God in the modern world. They look around and say, how can the, this God that Christians proclaim, a God of justice, how can I believe in him when, when the world is so unjust, when children are abused, when hard workers are laid off with no justification, where then is the God of justice? When earthquakes and natural disasters strike the good and bad alike, how can we believe in a God of justice? We find, though, that in Malachi's day, just as much in ours, this hope and longing for justice is voiced. It's not merely a modern problem. In Malachi's day, too, people were asking, where is the God of justice? So it's a pressing concern, and it's it's an ancient concern. As long as people have been dealing with God, they've been asking, how are you just in this situation, God? Where is the God of justice? And in chapter 3, verse 1, God responds, behold, Here I am. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way for me. Just like a president's motorcade that clears the road when the president drives somewhere. In the ancient world, the messenger would run before the king, clearing people out of the streets and preparing the way. So there's good news. They say, where is the God of justice? He says, here I am. I'm sending my messenger to clear the streets. God is on his way. The messenger is preparing the way. So in a sense, it's good news, but it's not what the people expect. You may remember this famous bit of dialogue at the end of the movie, A Few Good Men. Tom Cruise is a military attorney investigating the death of a young soldier under Jack Nicholson's command. At the climax of the movie, there's this dialogue back and forth. Nicholson is on the stand and he starts to get flustered and asks Cruise, do you want answers? And Tom Cruise responds, I want the truth. And Nicholson's famous line, you can't handle the truth. Well, in a sense, God here is saying, you want justice? You can't handle justice. He says, who can endure the day of my coming? Who can stand when I appear? I'm like a refiner's fire. I'm like Fuller's soap. The God of justice, you see, is a God of absolute justice, of total justice. When the God of justice arrives, we have another word for it. It's judgment day. The day of the Lord, a day of total reckoning. Justice is not safe or comfortable. Justice is judgment day. So we all want justice, we long for justice, we hope for justice, or so we think, but we have to ask ourselves what true justice, that is God's justice, really looks like. So this leads us to the second point we must reflect on. God's justice, we are told by Malachi, is like a refiner's fire. Uh, it melts everything. A refiner refines silver by melting it, so all the impurities come to the surface, it can be skimmed off, uh, but it all has to go in the fire. When silver is smelted, all the impurities come to the top. And when the God of justice arrives, it's like wash day. Harsh lye soap will be used to clean everything, not just the things we think are dirty. And so we see that true justice, God's justice, involves two works. In verses 3 and 4, Malachi says God will purify like a refiner's fire. But in verse 5, it says God will draw near in judgment. God's justice involves both purifying and judging. These two aspects must be held together. And interestingly, throughout the Bible, they are both symbolized by fire. To think about what true justice looks like, look at verse 5. We see God's justice is a total justice. Look at the list of things that will be judged. Malachi lists all kinds of sin. God will be a witness against sorcerers, idolaters, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside foreigners, and do not fear me. This seems to us, if you reflect on it, like a very mixed list. See, we want God to justly judge certain kinds of sins that seem to us the most problematic. But Malachi's list cuts across modern divides between what we might call private morality on the one hand and social justice on the other. To some of us, we look at these things that we might call private morality, sorcery, adultery, not fearing God. We say these are really visible sins and obvious problems in our society. We say, yes, God, come and judge sexual immorality, abortion, pornography, increasingly inappropriate entertainment, all these obvious indicators of wickedness in society. But it it tends to be the case that the people who focus on those moral issues might wonder why questions about what wages are paid to workers are even included on this list. It seems like a foreign concern to this set of clear immorality. What does it matter how we treat the poor? What does that have to do with these moral sins that Malachi is judging? We may even say that paying employees low wages is good business practice, necessary to stay competitive in the modern economy. On the other hand, some of us perhaps uh, are attracted to and and concerned especially with these issues of social justice, which seem to us obvious forms of wickedness. Perhaps you read, like I did this week, that uh, workers who make dolls for Disney that will sell this Christmas season for $20 a piece make approximately one and a quarter cents per doll. And you hear that and you're indignant. You think this sounds like exploitation of workers. But again, it tends to be the case that people who are particularly concerned with issues of social justice Say, it's nobody's business what happens in the bedroom, or how we practice our religion. What does God care if I want to do sorcery or or adultery or these various things? So the real concerns are these social justice issues. But notice Malachi cuts straight across the list. God's justice is a total justice. In modern society, by compartmentalizing sins and injustice, we say with the people of Jerusalem, how have we wearied God? What, me? Surely I'm not a sinner. I don't do this list uh, and overlook that God's justice applies to everything, private morality and social justice, our individual actions and larger social structures. It's all part of God's justice. In fact, by compartmentalizing and dividing between private morality and social justice and ignoring one side of the equation, we join the citizens of Jerusalem and say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Uh, I'm afraid things actually. Oh, we find it easy to say that sin and injustice we are comfortable with uh, is is good in the sight of the Lord. We might be okay with, uh, you, you know, drunkenness in the home. That's it's private sin. What does it matter? It doesn't really hurt anything. And yet the Lord's justice is total and applies to all of these circumstances. And I'm afraid things don't get any more comfortable. We might look at this list and we'd say, "Aha!" But at least there's one of these that we don't engage in. I haven't done any sorcery lately. If anything, uh, if nothing else, I know I'm not a sorcerer, so at least I'm clean on one account. But we need to pause for a moment and reflect on what sorcery actually is. In the Bible, sorcery is attempting to manipulate the supernatural world to our own ends. And when we think about that, manipulating the supernatural to our own ends, how often are we actually, in fact, guilty of sorcery? How often do we go to church to simply ensure that our life runs smoothly? Or when we turn to God in prayer, it's simply to issue our shopping list of needs, that we're trying to manipulate God to meet our own needs. Uh, if, if, If anything else, or how is this anything else than sorcery and trying to manipulate God to meet our own ends? If we let Malachi reshape our understanding of justice and point us to what true justice, God's justice, looks like, suddenly things start to get really uncomfortable. We all want justice, but when we realize that we, too, are in the crosshairs of God's justice, that we, too, are guilty before God's court, it starts to get really uncomfortable. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is guilty people don't rejoice in the coming of justice. Think back to when you were a kid, or some of you are kids, uh, and your mom calls your name. Now, normally, there's nothing wrong with that, calling you to dinner, telling you that it's time for school. But think back and remember when you did something you shouldn't have, and you didn't get caught, and your mom calls you to dinner, and all of a sudden you think, oh, did she find out that it was me who broke the lamp? Did she find out that it was I was out past curfew last night? You have this guilty conscience, and when you hear your mom calling your name, all of a sudden it's not a pleasant thing. Uh, in the same way, when we realize how guilty we are before God, although we long for justice and we say we want justice, we say, where is the God of justice? We realize that's maybe not what we want, or at least it's a very scary thing. If we let Malachi reshape our understanding of justice, we realize that it is not just us being patient, waiting, asking where the God of justice is, but it is rather the God of justice who is being patient with us. The God of justice who is slow in coming to judge us because he knows we cannot endure the day of his coming. We cannot stand when he appears. What then are we to do? Do we then have no hope for justice? We want justice, and if we're being honest with ourselves, we realize, though, that we, too, are guilty. So if justice comes, it will fall on us along with everyone else. Is there, then, any hope? If we let Malachi shape our understanding of what true justice looks like, we also need to let him reshape our understanding of what true hope looks like. First, we have to look at where our true hope is grounded. Although God is like a refiner's fire in 3.6, He promises that nevertheless we will not be consumed. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Our true hope is not grounded in our innocence. It's not grounded in somehow hiding our injustices. Our true hope is not based on how hard we try. Our true hope is found here alone, that God does not change, that he is faithful. God is faithful, and so we are not consumed by his justice. God is faithful. This alone is why we have hope. But this is a mystery. It's baffling. God does not change, and we know that he is committed to absolute justice and righteousness. But he has also committed himself in covenant promises to Abraham, Israel, to David. How can these both be true? How can he be a just God and the God who is faithful to his covenant promises? Well, God's ways are not our ways, and his ways will always be mysterious to us. But from our point of view, when at Christmas we celebrate something that has already happened, we can see more clearly how these claims fit together, how God can be committed to absolute justice and holiness, and yet still forgive his people. We already briefly noted in 3.1 that God sends his messenger ahead of him. But in 3.1, it also says, "...the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight he is coming." Now, we can imagine faithful Jews at the time of Malachi discussing this verse over dinner, maybe sitting down to a nice pot of goat stew. And the father says, I heard Malachi again in the market today. He's telling us there's going to be a series of three saviors, first the messenger, then the Lord, and then the messenger of the covenant, and then we will have justice. But his wise wife says, hmm, perhaps you're right, but doesn't Malachi also say that the Lord will come to his temple? And who else can claim the temple is his but God himself? And if the second one coming is God, then what messenger could come after him? And perhaps their son, little Abner, pitches in. And what about Isaiah's voice in the wilderness? And what about the servant of the Lord? So you can see if you are an ancient Israelite, there's a lot of puzzling. How do all these promises fit together, these various messengers and figures who are sent? If we must be patient in our longing and expectation of Christ's second coming, how much harder must it have been for God's people before Christmas to make sense of these various prophecies and promises? They knew God was unchanging, that he was holy, that he was just, and he was forgiving. But how would it all work out? Well, Paul, from our side of Christmas, looking back at the work of Christ, reflects on this very question in Romans chapter 3, showing the unpredictable shape, the wonder of God's deliverance. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is precisely Malachi's point. We all stand under God's judgment. And we're justified only by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience with us, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, his justice at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jesus, God is shown to be both just and justifier. Jesus is Malachi's Lord who appeared suddenly in his temple. First, he came to his temple as a babe in Mary's arms to be dedicated. In the temple, there was Simeon, you may recall, who waited patiently, and Anna, uh, praying and fasting, waiting to see God's deliverance. And they see baby Jesus, and they say, My eyes have seen your salvation. As an adult, Jesus returns to the temple, this time, like a refiner's fire, driving out the sellers, saying, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus realizes, though, that driving these people out, it's only a temporary cleansing of the, of the temple. The sellers would return eventually. It would be back to business as usual. The true hope for God's people, then, is not an external cleaning of the temple. It's no external system of reforms, but it's hope of being purified by a refiner's fire, to be smelted like silver and have our internal impurities and imperfections removed. But for that to happen, so that we could endure this refiner's fire, it first had to fall on Jesus himself. Jesus' first act as an adult, you may recall, and I had thought this was the other lectionary reading for this morning, so I I brought it in, I, I was mistaken on that, but he's coming to his cousin John in the wilderness, and he comes to be baptized, and John says, why should I baptize you, the sinless one? Jesus says, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I must be baptized to identify with my people in their sin and their need. But Jesus knew that the baptism of John was only a washing with water. So later in Luke, he says, the fire must also come. In Luke 12, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus says this to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, recognizing that he was going to be crucified and trying to teach them that this crucifixion was a second baptism, that uh, he, although he, he, he uh, drove the sellers out of the temple, this was only temporary, and the temple was only a symbol of God's true presence. God's true temple is Christ's body itself, and it is only through this temple that justice can be satisfied once and for all. In crucifying Jesus, moreover, all people... Uh, that were present thought they were fulfilling justice. Caiaphas said, it's better that one man die than the whole nation. Jesus wasn't simply murdered, but he was run through a series of Jewish and Roman courts. They thought they were fulfilling justice. And yet in this very act was the greatest injustice humans have ever perpetuated. It was the ultimate act of calling evil good. How then can we endure the refiner's fire and be purified? only because the fire first fell on Jesus. How can this washing that Malachi pra- promises with the, with the uh, fuller soap, how can it actually cleanse us? Only because in, in, in our baptism in water, are being washed, we are identified with Jesus' death and burial. In the symbol of baptism, we're actually drawn into his body. The cross simultaneously shows the foolishness of human justice and the profundity and wisdom of God's justice. And so our hope is for justice, And our hope is that we will not be destroyed by that justice, although we deserve it. it. And this hope can only be held by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Of course, imputation is a big word, but it just means that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. He puts his righteousness on us. It's reckoned on our behalf. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sorcery, our manipulativeness, our adultery, our injustice, our exploitation of others. God looks at us and sees nothing but Christ's righteousness on us and he welcomes us with open arms. Christ comes to fulfill all righteousness as the salvation of God. He delivers us from the consequences of sin, but he also frees us from the power of sin. Jeremiah asks, can a leopard change its spots? Or we might say, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Well, Jesus didn't come to teach old dog new tricks. He came to make old dogs new again. We often refer to Jesus' or Jesus' cousin as John the Baptist, but we might just as well talk about Jesus the Baptist. Jesus came to baptize, as John says, with spirit and with fire. He came like a refiner to smelt us, to smelt you and I, to pass us through the fire, that the dross and the impurities might come to the surface and he might cleanse them out. All the negative aspects of the fire, God's wrath and judgment fall on Jesus so that the positive aspects can come to us. This refining process in our lives is is a slow, painstaking process. The Holy Spirit works in the life of a Christian in a slow, painstaking, but inevitable way. It's rarely, though, in the way that we think the Spirit should work. We pray that the Spirit would change some very visible area of our life, a certain vice or sin. After all, we like changes in visible areas so we can see it and others can see it. But oftentimes, while we pray and ask as we ought to, the Spirit is actually working in another area of our life. This is because sanctification, the process of being refined, being made new, is not just about the elimination of external obvious flaws, but it's about inner transformation. We're heated up through stress, through suffering, through waiting patiently in expectation so that our inner flaws and impurities might rise to the surface. It's ugly when others see it, but it's what has to happen so that those impurities can be removed from our lives. Sanctification, being made holy, is about learning to live dependent on God. We might think, for example, uh, you know, that, that, we, that we oftentimes uh, have a besetting sin of fear or worry, that, that we constantly are in fear and worry. I can't count the times I've been awake at 2 a.m. worrying about things and praying. In all likelihood, though, I will still be wrestling with worry on my deathbed, Uh, It's something that perhaps is not going to go away. But I can wrestle and struggle in hope because I know that our holiness has already been bought and given to us. The most costly gift in history, it's Christ's righteousness and Christ's holiness given to us. We can wrestle with these sins in our lives, knowing that we do not labor in vain, but that the Holy Spirit is already at work in us. The gospel, the good news that Jesus first endured the fire so that it could purify us is just as true on our fairest and our foulest days. The gospel is true when you are at your absolute worst, just as much as it is true at your best. We all long for justice. We look at the world around us and we see that it needs justice. We ask, where is the God of justice? But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we deserve the punishment of God's righteousness and God's justice just as much as anyone else. And so the question that confronts us today is where is our hope to be found? Is it in our flecks of silver that we might find in our life, our own attempts and our own striving? Or when you stand before the God of justice who arrives, when you stand on judgment day, is your hope to be found in the Lord who has come to his temple, Christ Jesus, who has endured the justice and wrath of God so that we might be made righteous and so that the refiner's fire might purify us? Let us close in prayer. Gracious Lord, you are unchanging. You are unchanging in your justice. You are unchanging in your holiness. But you are also unchanging in your love for us and in your willingness to forgive. And so for this we rejoice as, uh, as we remember this Advent season, the past coming of Christ, to show that you are both just and the justifier. And as we look forward to your, your King, to Christ Jesus' second coming, We ask that you would be preparing us, that you would use the stress and the difficulty of life to refine us like silver, that you might remake us into your image, into something holy and pure. I ask for those today who perhaps have not yet accepted your gospel, that have not yet put their trust in Jesus, that they would be confronted anew with the reality that we will all one day stand before the judgment of a truly and absolutely just God, and that they will put their hope in the one true and firm foundation that is Christ's work on our behalf. I ask for others, brothers and sisters, who are struggling perhaps with sin, with with various uh, vices, with various fears in their life, that you would give them once again new hope and new courage to struggle, knowing that it is not up to them to refine themselves, but that it is your work, the work of your Spirit in us, that ultimately will bring about holiness. We ask this not in our own strength or trying to manipulate you, but we ask this only in the name of your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.